1: I'm your host Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I want to start off uh, this week's broadcast with a thank you uh, for everyone who has uh, wished me well uh, with a new project I began a few weeks ago, and I am now an editor and uh, had the privilege of working with Sophia Institute Press. And together we put together a book entitled The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology. And what it is is a collection of Archbishop Sheen's writings on the seven last words. And uh, Archbishop Sheen was a master communicator, and he spoke so well about Christ and him crucified. And each year he would give his Lenten addresses, and he would always uh, change things up. He would not give the same talk each year. He would always add uh, a new dimension to that talk. And uh, if you've read a number of his books, you know how he uh, was very topical, uh, and he would always keep us entertained. And so during the season of Lent, uh, I remember one year he spoke about the Mass. And of course, at the end of the year, he produced a book called Calvary in the Mass. Uh, Then the following year, he wrote uh, about the Beatitudes, and of course shared those messages on his radio broadcast. And then the following year, it was a talk on the seven last words and the many sorrows of life. And he continued this pattern uh, the next year by talking about the seven deadly sins and uh, the seven last words. Uh, And so if you study Fulton Sheen, Uh, Know that he, uh, for 58 consecutive years, always gave a reflection on the seven last words, our Lord's passion, his cross and resurrection, but always with a different theme. And so, what I did was I put seven of those themes together into one treasury, and uh, so everyone can have a little bit of Fulton Sheen. Uh, Every Catholic home should have this book, Uh, it is that good. And uh, i blessed to be part of that project. So again, the book is called The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen Anthology uh, by Sophia Institute Press. And of course you can find Sophia Institute Press on the web uh, by visiting their site. And uh, you can purchase the book uh, through them or from any of the fine distributors of good Catholic books all over this great, uh, I want to say, area of Canada and the United States, and of course, uh, with the World Wide Web, uh, it's open to the whole world. But again, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology by Sophia Institute Press, available wherever fine books are sold. And so again, thank you for your well wishes, and uh, it was a labor of love that I enjoyed doing, and uh, now we just want to enjoy the fruits uh, that come from the wisdom of Fulton Sheen. Okay. Uh, Today, let's see. Uh, What I've pulled out of the archives for you is a beautiful talk entitled The Denial of Sin. And I tell you, that's one of the greatest problems in the world today is that people deny sin. They don't think, you know, things are are sins anymore. (laughs) It's very clear. Now, I'm laughing. I'm giggling a little bit, but it's a nervous laugh Because we see it so many times in our friends and family. They'll say, oh, that's not a sin anymore. I think the Church changed its position on that, Uh, which is not true. Sin is still the same. Sin is sin is sin. And uh, we need to, of course, confess our sin, amend our life, and uh, be restored uh, to our good Lord. And so uh, Bishop Sheen is going to talk about the denial of sin. And uh, this comes from one of the retreats he gave a number of years ago, so I know you'll enjoy that. And so without further ado, I ask you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen.
2: If you were asked, what would you consider the greatest characteristic of our modern day, what would be your answer? I think that if you followed modern literature, you would answer a denial of sin. Sin is not in. It is even the fashion to deny sin. We are, for example, decreasing our confessions. There is even the suggestion that it is not well for children to go to confession before communion because sin might give them a sense of guilt. Now That would be indeed a very wrong confession. The purpose of confession of children is to recognize a relationship to a Heavenly Father and how that relationship can be broken. You just say to a two or three year old child, a mother or a father, I don't love you anymore. The child's heart is broken. This is the deepest understanding of what sin is. Sin is not the breaking of a law, it is the hurting of someone we wound. And if we do not understand broken relationships, who are we receiving anyway in Holy Communion? Is he a savior? No, we have no sin. Or there are no broken relationships. A distinguished Russian novelist of the last century Dostoevsky forecasted this for the 20th century. He said, A day is coming when men will say, There is no sin, there is no guilt, there is only hunger. And men will come crying and fawning to our feet, saying, Give us bread. It used to be that we Catholics were the only ones who believed in the Immaculate Conception of Our Blessed Lady. Now everyone is Immaculately Conceived. In Lord the Blessed Mother said, I am the Immaculate Conception. Her unique privilege. But today it is general. What are the escapes from sin and guilt today? There are many, but I shall mention two. The first is, we are not penitent, we are patient. We are not sinners, we are sick. All guilt is considered abnormal. Therefore, you must go to a psychoanalyst or a psychiatrist to have your sins explained away, not to have the sins forgiven. Now, do not misunderstand me here. I. I'm not saying anything against the psychiatrists because the psychiatrists are very badly needed in our day. I'm only speaking of those who deny guilt and want their guilt explained away. But even though guilt has sometimes abnormal manifestations, there's a very normal cause for that abnormal manifestation. Go back to Shakespeare's tragedy, Macbeth. Shakespeare was born in 1564, died in 1616. Long before we knew anything about split personalities. And in this tragedy he describes a perfect psychosis and a perfect neurosis. Macbeth has the psychosis and Lady Macbeth has the neurosis. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth had contrived to murder their cousin the king in order to seize the soul. They both had abnormal manifestations of guilt. Macbeth had a psychosis. He constantly saw before him the instrument of murder. And he asked, what is this that I see before me? A dagger? with a handle toward my hand. There was no dagger. That was the abnormal way that real guilt came out. Lady Macbeth washed her hands every quarter of an hour. She thought she saw the blood of the king upon her hands. She said, Are not all the waters of the seven seas enough to wash this blood incarnadine from my hands? There was no blood there. It was the crime that was coming out. All sin works itself out. You get a piece of glass into your system it will come out you know not where squeeze the tube of toothpaste with a cap on it will come out somewhere and all sin comes out in a mysterious kind of way I was once instructing a a stewardess on an international airline I had finished an instruction on confession, it was about her 15th or 20th hour of instruction. And she said, I'm finished now, after hearing this instruction on confession, I have given up any idea of becoming a Catholic, so I will discontinue." And I said, well, why don't you take one more hour, because the instruction on confession lasts for two hours. And then at the end of that second hour, you may leave if you wish. But well, at the end of the second hour, as I described the sacrament of mercy, she was in a veritable queen. She began to shriek and to cry, let me out of here. Now I'll never become a Catholic after hearing this. I said, my dear girl, there is absolutely no proportion between what you have heard and the way you're acting. Have you had an abortion? She said yes. That was it. She finished instructions. I received her into the church. Witnessed her marriage. Later on baptized the baby. Now I could have gone on for hours and hours explaining confession. That was not the problem. Guilt. How did it come out? It came out in a peculiar attack upon confession. And incidentally when you hear falling or fallen away Catholics argue one way or another. Never, never, never argue with a fallen away Catholic. They have not left the church for a reason, they have left it for a thing. They do not have great difficulty with the creed, they have difficulty with the commandments. But they'll rationalize it. And that is the second escape, rationalization. And they will attempt to find spurious reasons just to avoid, as the woman at the well did, the necessity of opening up one's soul before God. Take for example King David. David is one day on his rooftop and he looks across the way and sees in an adjoining penthouse Bathsheba. He invited Bathsheba over to see his etchings. They love not wisely but too well, and she is found with child. Well, Bathsheba is married to Uriah. And here she is pregnant by the king. So, what does David do? Well, Have to get out of it some way. So David called Uriah back from battle. And he said, go home to your wife in order to blame paternity onto the husband. Uriah said, I can't go home to my wife because we're at war. So David then got him drunk. But Uriah slept at the front door of David's palace. David then got in touch with the general and said, Put Uriah up in the front lines. Someone has to be killed in battle. Who knows, maybe Uriah will fall. Uriah was killed. Did it bother David? Not in the least. Six months? Even more. No troubled conscience. Then one day, Nathan came to him. Nathan said, David... I have a case in social justice for you. There's a poor man who had a single ewe lamb. And a rich neighbor came and took that ewe lamb, killed it, and served his guests. What shall we do? David, now oh, a great defender of social justice, David said, That man shall pay with his life and restore fourfold what he's taken. And Nathan said, Thou art the man. You're the one that stole the ewe lamb from the poor man. You stole Bathsheba. And you're guilty of the life of Uriah. And it was that he wrote the famous Psalm 51 Miserary Maid. Have mercy on me, O Lord. My sin is always before me. And do you know what we're going to see in our culture in the next 15 or 20 years? We're going to see a lot of schizophrenic women who have had abortions. And the abortion will not bother them five or ten years, and then your cruellest pain is when all the honey treasure of your body is spent and no new life to show. And then you understand how people taste the bitterest of all punishment, whom pleasure isolates. As they look and see against the window, the pale, sad faces of the little ones deny their wombs and bosoms. But sin comes out. And they will wonder what it is. But God's law is written in our nature. It is for our salvation. And though we deny sin, it is the realest thing in the world and the one thing that each and every one of us knows so well. Now we come to the next point. How is sin forgiven? I'm not speaking of the immediate cause, for example, absolution, perfect contrition, and the like. But what is the condition of having a sin forgiven? Perhaps I can impress it upon you more by reading it directly from scripture. I think I remember the text. I think it's in the eighth chapter of Hebrews, verse 23. And if it is not there, I shall have to quote it for you by memory. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Imagine... without the shedding of blood. The one condition. Blood. Why blood? Well, because sin is in the blood. It's in every alley and gateway of the human body. It's in the blood of the alcoholic. It's in the blood of the degenerate. Sin all diseases which are the effects of sin, and if sin is in the blood somehow or other, blood has to be shed, in order that we may in some way get rid of it. And furthermore, sin is a very serious offense against God. And the price of having it forgiven is the giving of a life. In the book of Leviticus says, life is in the blood. And therefore, the more important the life that gives its blood, the greater the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. When God then took upon himself a human form and shed his blood, that became the way of salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. In this holy hour, then, Let us now go through through the scriptures, old and new, and see how this is verified. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. First we go back to the original sin. when there was an abuse of freedom and after the sin of our first parents they perceived themselves to be naked why naked well in the state of grace they were they were clothed with an aura of grace Union with God it was a kind of a mystical covering. When they lost grace, then they felt themselves naked. And what is, what is nakedness? It's exposure. When nuns in certain communities, for example, take veils, take for example, the poor players and Carmelites, sometimes they will come in dressed as a bride, richly. Dress, then they will put on the humble attire. The idea is they do not need this outside luxury today, outside luxury, because now they're being clothed with Christ. And isn't it interesting today that, for example, as some nuns, you do not see it here, thank God, but in other places of this country, when nuns give up their union with Christ, and uh, then they have a separate dress for every day, pinks, and blues, and greens, and so forth the The less you've got on the inside, the more show you've got to have on the outside. man who's got nothing in his heart has to be surrounded by a tremendous amount of luxury, covering for another kind of nakedness. Man who is truly learned does not have to put on his show of learning, but ignoramus does. So they were naked. How do they cover their nakedness? They made for themselves an apron of fig leaves, and the fig leaves dried. And they were exposed again. How was their nakedness covered? And here we come to something that I I never heard about in the seminary for some reason or other. And it's so basic. It's in the third chapter of Genesis, verse 21. And the verse just glides in, showing you some of the deep mystery of Scripture. The Lord made tunics of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God gave them the skins of animals now notice three points here one God did something two it was done vicariously he didn't kill Adam and Eve for their sins he killed an animal thirdly that vicarious covering was done in virtue of the shedding of blood These are the three elements that you'll find running through scripture. Something God does, something that he does vicariously, and it is affected through the shedding of blood. I said I was going to take you through scripture, glory be to heavens, the way I'm going, we're only in the book of Genesis, but we have to finish within the hour, so I will hurry. Then we come to Cain and Abel. Cain offered the fruits of the earth. He was a technologist. He thought that was all you had to do to pay worship to God. Give the products of the earth. The earth was cursed and he gave the fruits of the earth. What did Abel do? Abel caught that primitive tradition and he offered a blood sacrifice. Cain was afraid that someone might kill him because he committed murder. And God said, I'll put a mark on you, and you'll be protected. And what was the mark? The brand of Cain. We do not know for sure what it was, but it is very likely that it was the blood of Abel himself. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Then we come to Abraham, 1,700 years before Christ, pagan who lived in the land of Ur. What tremendous faith that man had. His faith is praised eleven times in the epistle to the Hebrews. God said, Go to a land that I will appoint you. He did not tell him where it was, and in a number of years spoke to him only three times. And Abraham started out become the father of three religions, Muslimism, Judaism, and Christianity. And he went to the land of Canaan, and God said, you will have a progeny as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea. That will be your issue. When he's eighty, and his wife Sarah is seventy, they have no children what about the promise of God he shall have a son who will have a son and out of this relatedness one to another will come the Messiah so Sarah's wife said well consort with the Egyptian maid which he did and out of that union of Abraham and. Agar came Ishmael, the law without grace. When Abraham is a hundred and Sarah is ninety, and they both are beyond the time of conception, God had still not done anything. So think of the faith that Abraham had to have, that God will do something. And when God finally said you're going to have a son now you'll be rejuvenated Sarah laughed and she said I didn't laugh. You did laugh. So the son was called Laughter. That's the meaning of Isaac. So he had a son. Now after waiting all these years for a son God says now sacrifice your son. Think of it. In this day and age, when we write about obedience, we always say, Obedience must be rational. Rational? What was rational about God's command to sacrifice his son? But Abraham obeyed. And as we read later on in the New Testament, Abraham had faith that even if he went through with the sacrifice, that God would raise his son to life. No one was ever comparable in the Old Testament to Abraham's faith. Moriah, for three days, to all intents and purposes, his son Isaac is dead. So when he takes Isaac up this mount and unloads the wood, Isaac the son turns to the father Abraham and says, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And that question was caught up. On the top of Mount Moriah and it floated down the center. Jewish ears heard it for decade after decade. Where is, Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide. Which was an answer a bishop gave to me once, which was a turning point in my life. And I accepted his word. God will provide his deus probe David, and just as Abraham lifted the sword to kill his son, God stayed his hand, and there was a ram nearby, and the ram was offered. The ram's blood was shed. One something that God did. Secondly, it was done vicariously, the ram in the place of Isaac. And thirdly, it was effected by the shedding of blood. We hurry to Moses. Moses is in the desert, eighty years old. I, the other day I was giving a lecture in Palm Beach and in the hotel where I stayed, the rabbis were having a meeting. And they asked me to come in and talk to them. I said, what are you discussing? And the rabbi said, we're discussing retirement. I said, I don't understand how any Jew can talk about retirement when Moses didn't begin to lead you out of Egypt until he was eighty. So Moses is called by God at eighty to lead the people out of the land. Miracle after miracle is worked by God and Pharaoh promises to let the people go and does not let them go. God's patience was now at an end and he said, Tonight I will slay the firstborn of every man and beast in Egypt. Then he said to Moses, Kill a lamb, one year old, unspotted, take that blood, sprinkle it over the doorpost, not on the floor where anyone can walk on it, blood is sacred. See the Jews were not allowed to eat blood with the meat, and sprinkle the blood of that lamb over the doorpost, and the angel that I will send to destroy the firstborn of man and beast, when he sees that blood of the lamb, will pass over that house. That is the meaning of the Passover, and every house Wherein the blood of the lamb had been sprinkled, the firstborn was saved. God did something, he did it vicariously by the shedding of a lamb, and thirdly, did it vicariously by a lamb, and thirdly, there was involved the shedding of blood. As Moses now leads the people in the desert. They are disobedient to God and they are bitten by serpents. God said to Moses, take a serpent and model one of brass, just like the one that stung your people. Then hang it up on the crotch of a tree and everyone who sees that serpent of brass will be healed of poison. Now there is absolutely nothing in looking at a brass serpent that will cure snake bite. Nothing. All these things were in the Old Testament were done in figure. It was something God asked. And those who looked upon that serpent of brass were healed of the poison. And isn't it interesting that when our blessed Lord came one night in the discussion with Nicodemus, he said the Son of Man must be lifted up in the desert. The Son of Man must be lifted up On the cross, as Moses lifted the serpent in the desert, our Lord here compared himself to the serpent. So our blessed Lord on the cross looked as if he were full of the poison of sin because he took our place and had our sins upon him. But as there was no poison in the brass serpent, so there was no poison of sin in the person of Christ. And all who look upon him will be healed of We have no time to give you a dozen other references which I have marked here in the Old Testament, because we must bring it to a close. But now we come to the New Testament. and to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching in the Jordan. It is Passover time. It is the first Passover of our Lord's public life. On that highway, it led from the Jordan up a few miles to Jericho and then all the way up to Jerusalem. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews. Every family had to bring a paschal lamb, one year old without stain. Bring it to the temple where the paschal lamb would be sacrificed. The Jewish religion was a veritable hemorrhage of blood. And all the while, these people of the Old Testament who live in figured heard the question of Isaac, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And as John the Baptist preaches his hard doctrine of penance, laying the axe to the root of the tree, he sees the family leading these one-year-old lambs, children at church, had tied purple and red ribbons around the necks of the Lamb. And as he watches that procession in his preaching, he looks up and sees someone in the crowd. He interrupts his discourse, and the question of the centuries was answered, where is the Lamb? He shouted out, Behold, the Lamb of God! Who takes away the sin of the world where is the lamb he had come something God did he sent his son did it vicariously to be a victim for us and thirdly by the shedding of his blood and our blessed Lord therefore is unfurled on the gibbet of the cross And as he is erected there at the crossroads of civilization of Rome and Memphis and Jerusalem, placarded before us, as Paul tells us, there were thousands of Paschal lambs being sacrificed in the temple. It was a great ceremony in the temple while our Lord was hanging on the cross. Here was this great purple and hyacinth and gold curtain, sixty feet high, that divided the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The high priest was allowed to enter this Holy of Holies only once a year, and this was the day so he would take. He was preparing to take the blood of the Lamb and sprinkle it on that curtain which gave him the right to enter and to commune with the Holy of Holies. And as the priest prepares in the Temple of Jerusalem, living in the symbol and the figure of the Paschal Lamb, our Lord offers his life on the cross. And a Roman soldier pierces his side with a lance. And at the very moment that the side of the Christ is opened with that lance, this great curtain of the Temple of Jerusalem is rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, for man could do that. And the Holy of Holies, which men had never seen before, was opened. And on Calvary itself, the true Holy of Holies, Christ, his heart was open. Heaven was open. The Lamb had come and the price of redemption had been paid. And as we read in the Epistle to the Hebrews, the veil of the temple is compared to the flesh of Christ. And in this beautiful text, 10th chapter, verse 19. So now, my friends, the blood of Jesus makes us free to enter boldly into the sanctuary. Into the heart of Christ. By the new living way which he has opened for us through the curtains, the way of the flesh. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And I believe the reason we have so much violence on our streets, 40 different kinds of wars going on at the present time in the world, so much shedding of one another's blood is because we instinctively realize that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And when we do not invoke the blood of Christ, we shed one another's blood in the dirty business of war. So coming back to the very beginning, sin is costly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And this is our great privilege, Father, that at the altar we can hold this blood of Christ. We give it to the people, we give them communion, and there's Moses Moses sprinkled the people with the blood of the Lamb. So we are giving the blood of salvation. Holy Communion. Every time we lift our hands in the confessional box, blood drips from it. Every time we sin our hope for immediate remission is the invocation of the blood of Christ. Sin therefore is terrible, but sin is not the worst thing in the world. The worst thing in the world is the denial of sin. If I am blind and denied of any such thing as light, shall I ever see? If I am deaf and denied of any such thing as harmony, will I ever hear? And if I am a sinner and deny there's any such thing as sin, will I ever be forgiven? It is the denial of sin that is the unforgivable sin. And so as we get away from Christ, we need new coverings. It's very interesting to see the symbols change when we lose the reality. When we lose patriotism and love of the country, we begin to burn the flag. When we cease to love our consecration, we take off the signs of consecration. We begin to dress when we become naked on the inside. But with all of this falling away, our hope is in the blood of Christ. And the word blood in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is used 440 times. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Invoke this blood in the sacrament, in the Eucharist, in your prayers. For without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. If you had never sinned, you never could call Jesus Savior. You
0: are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith.
1: Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this edition of Your Life is Worth Living, and uh, I just want to again thank everyone for, again, the well wishes on the book launch a few weeks ago, and I would invite you to uh, get a copy. Again, it's entitled, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology, uh, a great treasury of writings from Archbishop Sheen about Our Lord's Passion about the Beatitudes, the virtues, uh, the seven deadly sins, uh, the difficult people in our lives. Uh, He shows us how to understand and deal with them. And of course, he writes about Our Lady and the unity of Christ and Our Lady and how we are to unite ourselves to Mary that she will show us the way to her Son, Jesus. So again, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, a Fulton Sheen anthology uh, through uh, Sophia Institute Press. And of course, I want to thank Radio Maria Canada for hosting me and giving me the opportunity to come in uh, each and every week and share uh, some of these reflections uh, from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, I want to thank my good friends at FultonSheen.com Now, this is the group uh, that uh, took uh, hundreds of hours of remastering a lot of the old, crackly uh, Bishop Sheen recordings. And many of you might have those old copies on, uh, uh, some of them actually have the records, and many of you have the old cassette tapes, and you know they can be a bit hissy and a bit crackly, And so uh, what our good friends at FultonSheen.com did is they remastered them, cleaned them up so that you can enjoy them in the comfort of your own home. And again, they're just pennies per recording and uh, they, of course, have uh, lent these recordings to us to share with you on Radio Maria Canada. And so we'd ask you to visit their website, uh, www.fultonsheen.com, and uh, there, for just $27, you can have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of recordings, uh, the whole library that they provide, and uh, you can even download the Fulton Sheen phone app. Uh, which goes onto to your uh, regular cell phone. doesn't matter if it's an iPhone or an Android phone. Uh, the app works for both. So, uh, again, you can carry Bishop Sheen with you wherever you go. And so, again, uh, our thanks uh, to the good folks at FultonSheen.com for making uh, these recordings available to us at Radio Maria Canada. Uh, again, we are uh, short on time today. It's just that was a longer talk that Bishop Sheen gave. And uh, so I think we'll just kind of end with a bit of a musical interlude. Uh, I call it interlude, but uh, again, because many of you stay with us uh, throughout the day. And uh, thank you for those who keep us on the radio all day long, uh, listening to us, uh, you know, morning, noon, and night. Uh, we need good stuff going into our ears and uh, feeding our souls and uh, Radio Maria Canada provides that for you. Uh, again, many quality programs. And my thanks to the many volunteers who uh, work countless hours to uh, keep us afloat. And again, God love you for your effort. And I'd ask you to be charitable in your giving. Uh, this is, again, a listener-supported apostolate. And so your donations help pay for uh, simple things as heat, hydro, and taxes. We we have a building. We have equipment. And uh, we get bills just like you do. Um, and So we need to pay our bills. And so your generosity is very much appreciated. Of course, we can issue you a charitable receipt and uh, help you with your taxes. Uh, But again, God sees sees all, and he knows your heart. And so I'd ask you to uh, prayerfully consider giving a donation to Radio Maria Canada to help keep this show on the air along with many other fine programs. And so, uh, if you'd like to contact me, you can visit me at my website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, on bishopsheentoday.com, you'll find the archives of all the shows we've done here at Radio Maria Canada. Uh, We're actually on episode number 74 today. Uh, So, uh, where did the time go? Uh, Well, over a year and a half now. And uh, we are blessed. And uh, again, uh, not only that, these shows are on uh, this uh, website, uh, but all the YouTube videos. I think there's a hundred of them right now on the website. Uh, There's a few free downloadable books and pamphlets that you can um, read at your leisure. Uh, So everything Bishop Sheen is on bishopsheentoday.com. So again, uh, something to look up on the internet uh, to uh, keep yourself busy and to stay holy because you want to... Listen to holy stuff and watch holy stuff and, uh, you know, protect your senses. Guard your senses. Anyway, all right, everyone, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. And we'll end with uh, Josh Groban's uh, beautiful song uh, entitled, Thankful, because we truly give God thanks. God love everyone.
0: Some days we forget to love God. Joy that surrounds us. So caught up inside ourselves, we take when we should give. So, for tonight, we pray for what we know can be. See, it's up to us to be the change, and even though we all can still do more, there's so much to be thankful. there's so much sorrow It's way too late to say I'll cry tomorrow Each of us must find our truth We're so long over tonight Still do more. There's so much to be thankful. is worth living hosted by al smith
2: here on radio maria canada